You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon, everyone. I want to start by thanking John Thomas, a Walker and Dunlop client and CEO of Physicians Realty Trust, for introducing me to Governor Thompson and making this discussion possible. I've been a fan of the governors for many years, and it's a true honor to have him join me today. Governor, let me do a, a, a quick intro, and then you and I can dive in. Governor Tommy George Thompson. Thank you is an American Republican politician who most recently served as interim president of the University of Wisconsin system from 2020 to 2022. He served as the 42nd governor of Wisconsin and the 19th United States Secretary of Health and Human Services from 2001 until 2005 in the cabinet of President George W. Bush. Governor Thompson is the longest serving governor in Wisconsin history, holding office from January of 1987 until February of 2001, and is the only person to be elected to the office four times. During his tenure as governor, he was also chair of Amtrak, the nation's passenger rail service. He was chairman of the Republican Governors Association in 1991 and 1992, and the National Governors Association in 1995 and 1996. After his time in the Bush administration, Governor Thompson became a partner in the law firm of Aiken Gump and an independent chairman of Deloitte and Touche's Center for Health Solutions. He has served on the boards of 22 other organizations. So, Governor, I want to start with a question on some personal preferences and then back up to your childhood growing up in Elroy, Wisconsin. But first, it's my understanding that you drive a Corvette. I think there's a pretty good chance that you have $1,000 in your pocket as we talk right now and that you still water ski. Are all of those true? And if so, where did the love of fast cars, carrying a lot of cash, and doing a sport most of us age out of much younger than you are come from? <laughs> well, thank you for the question. Yeah, they're all true. They're all true except for the water skiing. I, I busted up my shoulder water skiing, and uh, I have to go back this summer because I couldn't ski last summer because I, I had an operation on my right shoulder, which was caused by water skiing. So, yes, I'm water skiing, and yes, I love my Corvette, and I always have at least a thousand more than that, usually, because my father always carried a thousand dollars, and I always felt, you know, I always had to outdo my father. So, I guess it was a sort of a competition between my father and myself that I carried that much cash. You do know, Governor, that Venmo and MasterCard and some other things didn't exist back when your father was running his gas station. So that might have been the reason he carried $1,000 in his pocket that you necessarily don't need to carry today. No, that's very true. But uh, somehow I I, I like having cash in my back pocket. So that's why why I carry cash. It's sort of difficult because a lot of families won't take cash anymore, which is really disconcerting. So. Very much so. And on the water skiing front, Governor, I mean, most people retire from water skiing in, I don't know, their 30s or 40s. You're over double that age. I love the idea of you being out on the lake, but is that is that the healthiest thing for you to be doing? Sure it is. Sure. Either that, bicycling or driving my tractor. A very aggressive personality, and I love to be involved doing a lot of things. My whole family water skis. 
and everybody in the family can out ski me now, even though I've taught them all how to do it. <laughs> so it's sort of a competition, but they're all better than I am today. So let's back up, Governor, for a moment to Elroy, Wisconsin, and growing up in a in a in a small town in the southeastern part of Wisconsin. I believe the population of Elroy is slightly over a thousand people. What did you learn growing up in Elroy that made you so successful? Well, first off, Elroy doesn't have any stop and go lights. A couple of stop signs, and that's it. But yeah, you can call somebody, get a wrong number in Elroy, and still talk for a half an hour. Everybody knows everybody. What's great about growing up in a small town, everybody has to work. Everybody has to contribute. You have to play in the basketball, the football, the baseball team because they don't have enough players without you. And so you have to be competitive. You have to be involved. And you know everybody in the community. It's, it's an extremely nice way to grow up because people know you. They can talk to you. And they also complain to your parents when you get out of line. That happened to me more than once, but I'm sure. But, you know, Elroy was a great city. It was a railroad community, and uh, we used to hop the trains 11 and 12. It was funny when nobody got hurt or killed, but we'd, we'd like, hop on the trains when they were leaving the station and ride them out to the edge of town. So that's the my love for railroads started way back when I was 10 or 11, and that's why I was so happy to be on Amtrak. But Elroy was a great place to, to grow up. Your father owned a gas station and a grocery store. I'm assuming you learned a lot about customer service, both watching your dad run those two enterprises and then also interfacing with clients. There's no question about it, Willie. And my father had a great, he was on the county board and every Friday night we had hamburger and cheese and beer and pop and all the local farmers came in and we talked about road building. That's got me in, interested in politics and learning how to do it. Also, my father taught me, he says, Tommy, you have two ears and one mouth. Use them in that proportion and you'll get along just swell. And my, he was German and my mother was Irish. And she says, Tommy, smile at everybody and always say hello. That created the gregarious attitude I have where I always shake hands. I always talk to people. And it was that uh, upbringing that allowed me to be, I think, successful in politics. In your book, Governor, My Journey of a Lifetime, you state that you had a complex relationship with your father and that you termed him a, a, a tough German guy. And you go on, though, to talk about that some of the really hard lessons you learned growing up came from a place of love. How old were you when you sort of had that epiphany that many of the things that you sort of endured as a kid were actually from a place of love and not from a place of, if you will, hostility or meanness? I never really got the love part until I got the, out of high school and got going to college because I had to work from the time I was five years of age. My, my father was German and believed that everybody, if you wanted to get something, buy something, you had to go to work. So at the age of five, I was cleaning eggs in the basement without a window and cleaning eggs that the farmers brought in and traded for groceries. I got promoted from that to painting barns out my father would hire me out to farmers to paint their barns and then from their construction. So I had a, I had a tough growing up, but it was a good growing up uh, period. And uh, my father was very tough. And he said, if you want to be successful, use your, use your two ears and one mouth in that proportion and work hard and always say hello to people, always be nice, always be friendly, but always be honest and straightforward. And uh, that's what I got from my father, even though I didn't know he loved me until I left high school and went on to college. Then I found out he really didn't care for me. 
And you're a proud Badger having gone to the University of Wisconsin in Madison and you went on to law school there. What was it that drove you to law school, Governor? Was it was it that you thought learning the law would be helpful in a career in politics or was it some, you know, did you think that at any point you'd just be a legal practitioner and be a lawyer? Well, my father was the first one in our family to go on to school and he he was in law school when he got injured severely and he dropped out and he always felt that he got shortchanged and so I sort of picked up the cudgel from my father to become a lawyer. Plus, I also won a scholarship to study politics in Washington my senior year in college. And I went out there and I, I got a chance to work for some congressmen on my scholarship and some senators got a chance to meet Barry Goldwater, Teddy Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and all those individuals. And I said, this is a pretty good life. I sort of like this life. And I said, I think I want to go. I want to get involved. So I went back after I left my summer internship and scholarship at the Capitol and decided I was going to get into law school and see if I could get elected. And so I, I had this epiphany from my scholarship at Washington to come back and get a law degree and run for elected office, which I did. Was there anything from your experience, either in undergrad or at law school at Wisconsin, that you either took as something that you wanted to see more of or less of when you became the head of the system? In other words, like, I don't know, we all, we all sort of have our various things. Like, was there something that you sort of said, that was a great part of my education, we ought to do more of that, or that was a bad part of my education, we ought to get rid of that? Not really. You know, when I came in, they had a real problem at the University of Wisconsin. They needed somebody tough and somebody who's not afraid to make a decision because the university was closed down and they had a failed search for the president of the university. And they didn't know how to start the school. And so they brought me in to be the tough guy, to be the person, not tough to the sense of being rude or powering, but not afraid to make decisions. So I called all the chancellors together. And after a two-hour meeting, I said, are we going to start school on September 3rd? Or what's your decision? They said, we decided that we need another, another meeting. I said, no, that's not how I operate. We had a meeting to decide. I'm deciding. We're going to open school September 3rd. I did a lot of opposition from the 13 chancellors, but I pushed it through and it was the right decision. And every one of those individuals that opposed me at the beginning came around and said it was the right decision, Tom, and I'm glad you had the courage to do it. We actually saved the university because it was really going in the wrong direction. I'm a firm believer that when you're placed in a position of power and authority, you have to make decisions. And this one was a big decision of whether or not we were going to start school or not. A lot of professors, a lot of people didn't want to. I knew it was best for the students, best for education, best for the university. And I pushed it through. You got to have a leader with courage and convictions and not afraid to make a decision. So, Governor, on that, I had Admiral William McRaven on the Walker webcast about a year ago. And as you likely know, Admiral McRaven, who is an incredible leader and an incredible hero, went on to be the chancellor of the UT system and struggled, I think, in leading the UT system because rather than being in the hierarchical structure of the U.S. military, he had this sort of amorphous board of chancellors from across the UT system that he had trouble sort of corralling and keeping together. What was it that allowed you with those 13 other governors on the system, beyond having being a four-tenure governor, which obviously helped. What was the trick to keeping all of that together, Governor? It was not so much a trick as being direct, being honest, and being forceful. 
And it was also the fact that we have a board of regents over all of us, and then the president of the university, and we have 13 campuses with chancellors. And we have another 13 two-year campuses, all under the direction of me, or the president. And I came in as an acting capacity. Everybody knew when I was governor of the state of Wisconsin, I was very faithful and very fair to the University of Wisconsin. I love Madison, love the university, and love what it was able to do. And I always tell people, you know, I wouldn't be here today with my accomplishments if I didn't have a great education, which I got at the University of Wisconsin. I wanted to give back, but I also knew that I had to lead. And everybody could not make the decision as to whether or not we're going to open up what classes we were going to wear or have, what masks and so on. I had to make those decisions and I was not afraid to. And when I made the decisions, I had enough aura, enough responsibility, enough power to push it through. And actually they came around and supported me enthusiastically. So I didn't have the difficulty the Admiral had with a lot of dispirited and a lot of individuals pulling every direction. They wanted a leader to make decisions and that was, and they got that, it. You know, today it might be different. You know, I'd go in there; they probably would not be so willing to follow, and probably push back more. But the time was the pandemic, and they were afraid. Everybody was afraid. What's going to happen? And they liked a strong leader, and that's what I was. So, final question on the university system in the University of Wisconsin: You're leaving your archives to Marquette and not the University of Wisconsin. Why to Marquette and not the University of Wisconsin? No special reason. Marquette is a great university, and I, I left a lot of my papers there, but the University of Wisconsin and the state of Wisconsin has also got duplicates. So they both got all my papers, and I'm willing to share and give uh, whatever I can to both the University of Wisconsin and Marquette. We're rewarded in this state for having uh, a lot of great educational systems, and I'm very proud of that. So you were elected the 42nd governor of Wisconsin and elected an unprecedented four times. If you look at how you governed in your first term versus how you governed in your fourth term, what changed in your leadership style? Oh, a lot. The first time, you know, I was coming out of the legislature. I've been in the legislature for 20 years. And I had first the problem of having both houses controlled by Democrats. It was a Democrat. It was a blue state when I got elected governor. I was the only Republican governor in 1986 to defeat a Democrat incumbent. And so I was somewhat unique and I campaigned hard. I won. And so I had to overcome the fact that this was a Democrat state and nobody thought that I could ever get reelected. And so I was set up to fail and everybody sort of believed that I was not going to be successful. Isn't it but true that the press corps did a poll before the 86 election and, and, and not a single member of the press thought you were going to get elected? I was 39 to zero. <laughs> and they all threw in 10 or 15 bucks, probably 10 bucks because they're relatively conservative, cheap in that regard. And so I went around and nobody thought that I had a chance because it was a Democrat state. I was running against a popular Democrat governor and they just did not realize how hard I was working and how upset the people of the state of Wisconsin were about the direction we're going. So they gave me a chance. The people of the state of Wisconsin gave me a chance. And I never forgot that. I believe if somebody gives you a chance, you got to repay that by hard work, by making sure you do the right things for all the people. And that's what I did as a freshman governor. 
but I had to overcome the problem that everybody thought I was going to fail and I was only going to be a one-term governor because it was a Democrat state. They thought it was an aberration that I got elected. And when I got elected, it was very successful because I was able to bring Democrats in. I took the majority leader, who was a Democrat, who was going to run against me in four years and made him a member of my cabinet, which was really unheard of. And I put Tim Cullen, very smart, one of the smartest things I did right at the beginning, caught the press completely by surprise, the people by surprise, the Democrats by surprise. And I had a very high ranking Democrat in my cabinet that helped me with welfare reform and get it passed. And so those are the things you learn. You have to be willing to take a gamble. I thought, you know, let's reach out. And I took away my future opponent, put him in the cabinet, and he was extremely helpful to change, help me change Wisconsin for the better. How did you not get arrogant in the fourth term? Oh, it was easy. The press is still very liberal in the state of Wisconsin. So every every time you did something, they were there to highlight it. And if you made a mistake, they would really highlight it. And so the press was very good about keeping you humble. And the people were good about keeping me humble. The fact is, you know, I'm not a very arrogant person. I love people. I grew up in the grocery store where you had to, you know, encourage people to come back and shop. You have to be nice and friendly. I was able to, you know, to take that feeling of friendliness wherever I go and whatever I do. And as a result of that, I think people like me. And I worked hard. I went all over the state, met thousands of people. And the joke is, if you haven't shaken Tommy Thompson's hand, you must not have lived in Wisconsin very long. So, <laughs> so. So, Governor, you you love the line item line item veto. It was hugely helpful to you. Should all governors and the U.S. president have a line item veto? Yeah, oh, yes, absolutely, they should. It puts you on a par with the legislature. In my case, the Democrats control both houses, and they gave me a bunch of things, you know, that would have caused problems for the state of Wisconsin. I was able to use the item veto and change the direction of a lot of legislation and not spend as much money by writing down the appropriations to a sensible amount. And as a result of that, I had more vetoes in my budgets than any governor ever has. And I had, I think, more more vetoes in my first budget. And I had to show the Democrats that I was serious. And when I, after the first budget, they knew I was serious, it was much easier then to work together. We developed a very good working relationship the second two years. The first two years was very, very rough. But it was the Ida veto that gave me the power to bring the Democrats together with me to do what was right for Wisconsin. So I believe you exercised the line item veto over 1,500 times, and it was never once overturned by the legislature. That is correct. Never once. I had a unanimous. I told the Republicans, I said, the only way that we can be in a position of power is by you sustaining my vetoes. And they did. I had enough Republican votes. One time I didn't have enough Republican votes and I got two Democrats to come along and vote for me to sustain my 100% success ratio with the item veto. So you focused a lot of, you mentioned a moment ago, Governor, on welfare reform. You invested heavily in education and opportunity, and you Mm -hmm. also did a great deal to reform entitlements. Why were you, I mean, obviously your leadership had a lot to do with it, but I guess the more broad question I'd have for you is why have we as a nation in so many states been unsuccessful at entitlement reform? I don't think they have the courage. It's a very difficult position to take. 
Because what you're doing is you're taking away something that some people think they're entitled to and requiring people to work. And in this day and age, nobody really wants to require somebody else to work. They feel they're entitled not to have to work. And they feel the government owes them something. I never believed that. I always felt from my background and growing up relatively poor and having to work for everything, everybody should have the same opportunity. You know, I put myself through college. Why Why not put yourself through college? It, you know, people say, well, I, I can't go to college and work. Why not? I did. And uh, I'm sure you did, really. And there's nothing wrong with uh, having a part-time job, attending bar or busing tables. People got to realize in America, we have a system of checks and balances, but we also have a capitalistic society, which means you have to work. You have to be able to deliver. You have to produce. And that's the kind of mantra that I preach to the people of the state of Wisconsin, and they responded enthusiastically. And they gave me the support, and the legislature finally did. And I don't think too many governors want to take on that message, because it's much easier to give. Somebody asked you for something, give them some taxpayers' money. I took away. I said, no, we can't afford it, and we're going to change the system, and people are going to have to work. You're going to have to go to school. If you don't go to school, you don't get your welfare check. If you don't work, you don't get a welfare check, or don't try. I used to call it tough love, and people used to call me the tough love governor. I think it works. I think people need to work and be responsible for their actions. Whether it's taking out a loan for school, they have to pay it back. It should not be forgiven. Whether or not you should work in order to put yourself through school, what's wrong with having a part-time job on the weekends or in the summer months and helping to defray some of the costs? If you don't want a lot of loans, go out and get a job. Reduce your caseload or whatever, your coursework, at least participate in the system. So I've heard... You reflect, Governor, back on 1996, that you feel like you should have run for president. As you think about that, the question I have for you is this. Having been in politics as long as you have been, and having been both a consulted to others and given consulting to other politicians, there seems to be a window that opens for national level politics. And if you don't hit it at that moment you kind of will look back on it and say, oh, I wish I'd done it at that moment. What was it in 96 that made you not jump in? Because my people, we just won a successful re-election and people- By, by 62%. I think you got 62% of the vote on that on that third re-election campaign, something that you were well over 60. Yeah, well over 60. I won every county except one county in the state. I even won uh, Dane County, which is the bastion of liberalism. It's uh, where the university is in Madison. But I still won every county except one, and I only lost that by 22 votes. If I would have known I was that close, I would have spent the last day there and got that one. But anyway, you got to run when the time is in your advantage. I had just won successfully. I had just been able to be designated as the most successful governor in the country. I also had uh, welfare reform. People were copying me all over the country. Federal government was copying me and I was testifying. I should have run then. But uh, people in my administration thought that it was time for somebody else to run and I should wait. And I complied with their wishes, even though I feel I let myself down. And I, I usually go against the curb. You know, I usually am one of those individuals. Everybody says, no. So what? I'll, I'll try it anyway. 
And I should have been 96, but I sorry I didn't stand up and say, I'm sorry you don't feel I should run, but I'm going to run. Yeah. Same way I did in 86, people said I didn't have a chance to run for governor. Nobody said I had a chance, including the press. As you noted, 39 to nothing, they, they voted with their dollars that I didn't have a they, chance. They all ate a lot of crow on that one over the next over the next four oh. turns, uh, Governor. So, so let's fast forward to going to D.C. You go in as secretary of HHS. Talk for a moment, Governor, about the difference between being governor of a state and being a cabinet secretary as it relates to either role responsibility, engagement, excitement as an incredible leader who controlled everything to being one of a cabinet and of a large sort of bureaucracy. Just for a moment, for those of us who have no idea what it's like either to sit in a governor's seat or to go in and be a cabinet secretary, what's the real difference there? The real difference was is that when you're a governor, you wake up in the middle of the night, get an idea, you can put it into a work at seven o'clock the next morning when you go to work. Immediately, you got people working on it and something come back that afternoon. When you're Secretary of Health and Human Service, you take the same idea that you get during the night, you wake up and you got this great idea, you take it in, you have 67,000 people in the department who all think they're smarter than you, and you got to get some buy-in from them. Then if you get buy-in from them, it's got to go over to the super god in our society. I didn't know there was a super god, it's OMB. And they turn you down every time just because they have the three out of four times they turn you just to show you who the boss is. Then if you do get by OMB, it goes over to the super intelligentsia in the White House. The young Turks who have never had a job anyplace, but are college interns or so on and so forth. And they don't think anything bright could come out of a secretary's mind. So they are all opposed to it. And if you get by all of those, goes to the president of the United States. And if he buys into it, it's time for you to retire. Nothing gets done. Whereas as governor, you can move immediately and get it done. But I did love my job at the Department of Health and Human Services because we did, we did get a lot done. But the bureaucracy is set up to prevent you from acting very rapidly and getting things done in Washington. Were you in D.C. on 9-11? I was in 9-11. And I was, in fact, I think I was the only person to get a plane in the air that evening. I declared a health emergency at 10 o'clock that morning, and we had to get 100,000 of medical supplies out of CDC up to New York. We were able to get 50,000 pounds of medical supplies from one of our medical depots to New York by five o'clock that afternoon. And I was very much involved. A couple of the areas that you focused on, Governor, as Secretary of HHS, strengthen U.S. preparedness for bioterrorism attacks, increase funding for NIH, expand health insurance coverage to lower income Americans. That's playing off of everything you did in the state of Wisconsin and focus attention on health problems such as obesity and diabetes. Two decades later, have we really made any progress at the national level on those four initiatives that you focused on? Some, but not as much as I would like. You also forgot Part D, the pharmaceutical thing, which I was a quarterback of getting Part D for drugs in the Medicare proposal, which is still probably the greatest improvement to Medicare from the beginning of Medicare, that drugs were covered. I don't think much is being done because what happens in Washington, unless there's an emergency, they forget about it. Public health is something you can forget about. And we built it up big time when we had 9-11 because everybody was concerned about throwing money at it. We did. But then since then, it sort of went by the wayside and we didn't have the importance, the sex appeal. That it did. Then the pandemic comes, now they're throwing money back at public health. 
it would be nice if you were able to keep that public health system going strong and you'd be able to prevent the kind of ups and downs we have during pandemics. And so that's a big problem. But Congress has a tendency to really react only to big things that are happening at that particular time. Right, right now, trying to come together with a budget to continue the government. That's an emergency. They got to do that. That gets their attention. Public health, you know, now that the pandemic is done, you're not going to find as many Congress people and senators and presidents talking about public health. You raised the issues of the avian flu and the, the dangers of the avian flu extensively when you were secretary of HHS. Now that we now that we look back on COVID, it, you know, those warnings again almost two decades ago seem a prescient and b too bad that we didn't follow along with them. You also talked about the threat to our food supply and the fact right. that you were surprised that terrorists hadn't attacked our food supply. Have we done anything over the last two decades to protect the U.S. food supply against potential terrorist attack? No, Willie, we really haven't. The food supply and the, and the amount of things that are coming in through our borders right now is this positive indication that things could happen. Our food comes in. We have food and medicine from all over the world coming. The inventory that we got in order to manufacture food and drugs comes from all over. And there's very little protection. They have not taken my advice and really set up programs to help look and feather and be able to find any kinds of obstacles and find compromises and so on that can make our food and drugs safer. We need to do that. And the same thing happens in public health. You know, if they would have listened to me, they probably would have been much better prepared for the pandemic, but they weren't. They forgot about it. The same thing happens on food safety. I'm very worried about it. It's something that happens and could happen, and we're not prepared for it. So there's another thing that's of concern to you today, Governor, which is social media. And I think you joined the Council for Responsible Social Media and focusing on that. As you think about the world we live in today, I mean, you know, food is obviously sustenance every single day for all of us to continue to live. Social media is a complete option in all of our lives. And at the same time, it's having this, in many instances, pernicious impact on American society. What do you hope to achieve by having joined the Council for Responsible Social Media? I'm trying to bring a degree of candor. Right now in politics and in social media, nobody has to tell the truth. Oh, I... You know, it's spread just as fast as the truth is. It's probably faster. And nobody checks on that. Nobody does any cross-checking to find out what you've said. What is out there is truthful. And that really tears at the fabric of our democracy when you're basing decisions based upon falsehoods. And right now, nobody has to say the truth. Nobody has to be honest. When I was first running for governor, the press was there. And if you if you lied, They'd excoriate you. Right now, you're lying to get away with. Nobody ever checks what you say. Is that really true? And that's causing, I think, a teardown of our fabric of democracy. It really bothers me. I'm trying to get ethics and integrity and honesty back into government. I don't know if it's even possible with social media, but at least I'm going to try. In your book, 
Governor, you talk about the divisiveness in politics in America back in 2012 when Barack Obama was running against Mitt Romney. And in comparison to 2012, the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections made 12 look like a, a Boy Scout troop meeting. I mean, it, it looked like a walk in the park. One of the quotes that I've heard you say before is Ronald Reagan's quote, it's amazing how much you can get done if nobody cares who gets credit for it. How do we get back to that? I mean, you've been somebody, you talked just a moment ago, Governor, about the fact that when you first got elected, you brought a Democrat into your administration. You've right. always been looking for bipartisan solutions. And there's feels at least to me, that mayors and governors across the country have to act daily in a bipartisan way to run their states, to run their cities. And yet everyone we send to Washington goes with a blue or a red stamp on them. And that's all they want to focus on is the partisan politics. How do we break that kind of, and it's beyond a trend today. It's, it seems to be endemic in our politics. It is endemic, but we got to change that. Number one, we got to get the press back stronger. The press is so weak and they got to be honest. The press has got to be independent and they got to make sure that people are held accountable for what they say. That's number one. Number two, you got to get people to start believing and coming up with agendas and programs and what you're going to do. When I always ran, I laid out to the people of the state of Wisconsin, you know, what I was going to do, what I wanted to do. I had a plan. Nobody running for public office right now has a plan. It's against, I'm, I'm, I'm running because I'm against the blues. I'm running because I don't like Trump. I'm running because I don't like the Republicans. I'm running because the progressives are too progressive. Nobody's got a plan. How do you improve public health? How do you make our food safer? How do you make agriculture better? How do you make our inventory? So our, our cycle of inventory comes in so that we can get our manufacturing up and running. How do we do that? What are your plans, Mr. and Mrs. Candidate? What do you want to do? Nobody lays out what the hell they want to do. I think that's terrible. How could, you know, why do you run? If you don't have a plan, get the hell out of the way and let somebody else run that's got a plan. And nobody really good wants to run because all they're going to get, done, get is torn down by the other side. Lied about you, no matter what it is whether it be partially truthful or not, they lie about you. So you don't run and other good people don't run. And that's what we have to, we have to get good people back and we got to get the press independent enough that they are truthful and that they report truthfully what is happening. There are two things that I've heard you comment on that would seem to be along those lines, not political suicide, but things that very few people would go out and say, for instance, on the Affordable Care Act, which you don't agree with many of the things in the Affordable Care Act, and you also didn't agree with the way that the Democrats pushed the Affordable Care Act through right. without any Republican support. And yet at the same time, you said just because they are Democratic ideas doesn't mean they are bad ideas. That's that right. statement, that statement alone, many, whether you're Republican or Democrat, would, you know, to take something that is as controversial as the as the Affordable Care Act and make a statement like that. Many people would say, oh, as a Republican, you'll never get elected. The other thing that you focused on, Governor, is inmate reform. There are 23,000 inmates in the state of Wisconsin. You've come forward and said, we need to do something to rehabilitate these people, to put them back into the economy, to give them real jobs, to give them a second chance. And as I read that, my immediate mind went to Willie Horton, 
And what happened in the 19, what was that? In the 1980, was that 84? No, 84 was Reagan Mondale. So it was Dukakis Bush and how Willie Horton was made just the furlough program that Governor Dukakis had put in place was used as this wedge issue in that campaign to make it so that George H.W. Bush won as president of the United States, one of the big issues in that campaign. So if people are afraid to, to, to focus on how do we rehabilitate 23,000 inmates in the state of Wisconsin, and because they're fearful that that type of an ad might come out against them, how do they gain the backbone that you're talking about? It takes a backbone, but it's got to be done. We're going nowhere in the direction we're going now. We have become so polarized, so partisan right now, and nothing is getting done. We have huge problems in this country. Just take a look at the border. Nobody can do anything because nobody wants to talk to each other. Look at the border. Just the border alone is a huge problem. Now, that's not, that's not difficult. You can get down there and you can reach an agreement with Democrats and Republicans. And just because you're a Democrat doesn't mean you don't have good ideas or a Republican don't have good ideas. But let's start meshing them together. Let's get Republicans and Democrats with the courage to come together and pass something. You'd be surprised how the people would respond. When I get up and speak about bipartisanship and about the need, I said, I'm a strong conservative Republican, but there are some good Democrat ideas. And when I'm Goose governor, I stole them. I took the Democrat ideas and put them in with Republican ideas and got a bipartisan support. And that's what we have to do in this country. You have to have an agenda. You have to have a plan. And you have to give both sides an opportunity to work on it. Right now, they don't even talk. And that's the they talk through the media. They talk through social media. And as a result of that, nothing is getting done. Social security is broke. Medicare is broke. The border is broke. <laughs> and you know, you've got Russia and the Ukraine. We got China. We don't know what they're gonna do to us next. And all of the, in Iran, all of these are huge problems. They don't, we cannot afford to have the Republicans on one side and the Democrats on the other. These are problems that need to be solved for America. And they got to come together and they got to start talking about it. And it takes leadership to do that. I don't know if we have the leadership in Washington to do it, but that's what it is. If I was there, I would sit down with a Democrat counterpart and I said, let's develop a, a bipartisan plan and let's push it through. You'd be amazed if you got it started once how that would snowball and get other people involved. What's your take, Governor, on, if you will, the future of the Republican Party, given what happened in the midterm elections and, and if you will, most of those candidates that former President Trump endorsed not doing well? Do you think that the Republican Party is still inextricably linked to former President Trump? Or do you think that right now there is a lane, if you will, that didn't exist previously for other candidates to emerge? I'll go back to what you said earlier. There's a time, a sunlight, when you can move. The governor of Florida, DeSantis, DeSantis has got a tremendous opportunity. If DeSantis goes down that path, declares himself a candidate, I think it's going to be an amazing ride for him or some other outstanding governor that comes forth. But I think there's a time to move. And it's DeSantis's time to move and stand up and be a counterforce. If there's not, the Republican Party is going to be inextricably linked to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump did some great things as president. It's just if he would have had uh, other 
things that he would have done, he would have probably still be president. But the truth of the matter is, you got to move and you got to move now. What did your family say that convinced you not to run for governor for a fifth time? Oh, God, I wanted to run so badly, and I still do. I'm, I'm fairly confident that today, instead of talking to you, I would be setting up my administration if I would have run. I would have asked you to come on the webcast anyway, Governor, so I, you would have still given me the hour, I'm pretty sure. But anyway. I would have loved to have been on your program. You're a tremendous interviewer, but my family's been with me through thicker thin, and they were Every one of them was adamantly opposed. And I jokingly say, you know, it was either uh, run or divorce and versus divorce and divorces are very expensive when you reach my age. So I thought better, but which was not true. But truth of the matter is my family, they just, just did not want, want me involved and they didn't want to go through it either. So I, I listened to them. But every day I wonder what would have happened if I would have run yeah, you know, I mean, I, it's got to be something that's very difficult for someone who's been as successful as you have been in not only the leader that you've been for the state of Wisconsin, what you did in Washington, what you've done subsequent to being in office, and having that sense of if I could pull all that together to really make a difference. I mean, you're somebody who threw your you threw your hat in the ring. And at the end of the day, so many people don't even throw their hat in the ring to actually make a difference. And you not only have done it, but you've done it so successfully. Do all those things haunt you, Governor? Or do you just sit there and say, look, there were times and I just, I made a decision. That was my decision. I live with it. Because as governor, I would assume you made decision after decision after decision and created a very good frame of mind that said, I've made the decision. Hindsight's always 2020 vision. Might have been exactly right. Might have been potentially wrong. But I've got to move on because I've got to make so many decisions. Do you do that personally? Oh, sure I did. What I really wanted to do is exactly what you asked me. I wanted to run and get elected, and I wanted to see if I could change the dynamics in politics in Wisconsin once again. I wanted to bring Democrats in. I wanted to bring Republicans in, and I wanted to tell the national press, this is how you, this is how you change Washington. You become a bipartisan governor during this time of peril, this time of Jacob, I've had this all planned out, and I thought, you know, if, if I had the chance, I could become extremely bipartisan and come up with some real positive ideas to help help Wisconsin, but also help America, and show the show the country that there is a different direction instead of being so partisan, so parochial, but actually being bipartisan and getting things done. That's what I really wanted to do. Governor George W. Bush, who became President George W. Bush, worked very well with the state legislature in the state of Texas and arrived in Washington on January 20th, 2001, I think with the similar attitude to what you just said. What is it that happens when a governor with those intentions arrives in D.C. and runs into that buzzsaw? What practically, like my assumption, Governor, is that on that first cabinet meeting, there was some pretty decent bipartisan discussion. And then quickly it starts to turn. What is it about the reality of D.C. that makes it so that that what I call the buzzsaw of D.C. hits, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat who shows up saying, I want to act in that way. And then they get to the reality of what makes D.C. D.C. I think it's money, you know, the power of the purse. It's the special interest groups that all have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are. There's a huge number of organizations out there that do not want to see change. 
They want to maintain the status quo. They'll do everything they possibly can to do it. There is the partisans and both political sides that want to keep it as partisan as possible because they think it's to their advantage to do it. There's the squad today that is way on the left. There's a squad on the right. It's not a squad, but there's a group of far right that do not want to work together. It's there. It's inherent. But it's going to take, it's going to have to take a leadership of either a majority leader or a president to say, you know, I'm going to really defy the odds. And this is what I'm going to do. And Biden had that chance, but has seen fit to go completely partisan. And I don't understand it. I was hoping for better out of President Biden and hoping that the next Republican president is going to be able to come in and have some of the ideas I have and say, let's try it. Let's just try being bipartisan. Let's start solving America's problems and see if we can solve them instead of just postponing them to future generations. That's all we're doing. Our national debt, our border, China, Iran, Social Security, Medicare, public health. All we're doing is just kicking Take the, the can. Yeah, kicking the, kick the can, kicking the can. Nobody wants to sit down and say, what is the solution? Now, let's talk, let's just take Social Security. You and I, we can bring together 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats and you and I, and I would tell you in an afternoon, we could find a solution. Yeah. We can yeah. find a solution that works. And yeah. we can put that out. And all we need is the people then, like you and I, that would have the courage to vote for it. And we could fix that problem. It wouldn't, it's not rocket science. There are actual answers to the problems. If you came together and worked on them and gave, as Ronald Reagan says, give some people some credit. You don't have to have the credit. Give somebody else the credit for coming up with the idea. You'd be amazed how much we could get done. So I have two final questions for you, Governor. The first one is yeah. one of the things that I've always been impressed with in your leadership style is that you're always looking forward. Yes. You're not looking backwards. And I think it's one of those, there are many leaders who do look backwards. They either rest on their laurels, they're kind of hearkening back to some time that used to be, and they use that for a power base to say to people, we don't want to change. You've always been forward looking. How have you maintained that? What is it in your way of thinking and focusing on issues that makes you constantly forward looking rather than looking in the rearview mirror? A simple statement, Willie, that how can you have progress if you always look backwards? How are you going to move forward if you don't have a plan to move forward? And if you believe in the status quo, which so many people do, you're going backwards. If you're not looking over the edge, you're taking up too much space. And so I, I love I that quote. That is so good. I want you to look over the edge. I don't want you to step over the line, but I want you to look over the line. And I want you to find a solution. And you look forward when you say, that's a problem. You can look backwards and find out, is there something in the past that might help us? But look forward. I got to fix that problem. I got to get an answer to Social Security. There are millions of elderly people that depend on individual parents that depend upon Social Security to live. We need to solve that problem. Medicare is going to go broke in about 10, 15 years. It's going to go broke. People need Medicare. So let's fix it. 
Let's not push it down. It gets more expensive every time we don't decide to fix it. And that's what drives me. Problems need to be fixed. Potholes in the road need to be filled. Back to your dad being the commissioner and sitting around on Friday nights, fixing potholes and building bridges. So my final question to you, Governor, is this. Over the 4th of July weekend, I'm assuming that the Thompson family has some good food. I'm assuming there's a lot of water skiing. There might even be taking Grandpa's Corvette out for a spin. But there's something else that you require your family members to do on the 4th of July. Can you tell our listeners what you ask your family members to do and why you ask them to do it? At 12 o'clock on July 4th, noon, my whole family is brought together and I've written out the Declaration of Independence. And I give each person an assignment. And I give that person a name of one of the signers. And that individual relative, son, daughter, grandchild, has got to memorize that person and say something about that person, sign the declaration, read part of the declaration, and explain to me what it means. And I've done this for the last 25 years. It's fantastic. I wish every family in America would do that. And on that, Governor, I want to, A, thank you for your service to the state of Wisconsin as well as to our country. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And thanks for all your leadership on so many different things. It's just a real honor to have you on. Well, I hope I didn't talk too much, but I really, this was one of the nicest uh, discussions and conversations I've ever had. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's great to see you and everyone who's tuned in today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with Al Ratner and Peter Linneman to talk about the Great Age Reboot, Living Longer in America, and what the implications to not only commercial real estate, but the overall economy are as people live well into their 80s and 90s. So I hope you'll tune in then. Thank you again, Governor Thompson. Really, a real joy. Don't forget to mention John Thomas, the Physicians Really Trust, our great company. Very much so. I'm very thankful of him introducing the two of us. Thanks again, Governor. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.